Chris, Biobusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 12, recorded on March 15th, 2019. And uh, we have a uh, special episode today. Uh, I'm here with uh, Dr. Thomas Neufer. Is that, did I get that That's right? That's correct. All right, perfect. And do you go by Tom or Dr. Neufer or what's, what's your preferred? I think we should go Tom today. All right, Tom, perfect. So uh, Tom is a Teal College alum, and he is visiting Teal today. He's giving a talk uh, later on at 2 in about 40 minutes or so. So we at least have that much. Yeah, we're going to get you to your talk at 2 o'clock. So hey, welcome back to uh, Teal, Teal College, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, the campus looks really good. I haven't been here since 2001, so a lot of incredible changes, uh, especially in the science department, all the new labs and spaces. Uh, it's really impressive. So there's like, what, at least three, four buildings that are here that were not here when you were an, a student, right? Yeah, and sadly, my dormitory, uh, Harder Hall, has been torn down. But that's okay. It's, it's for the... Making room for a science. For science. Yeah, that's absolutely. the only possible or the only acceptable reason. <laughs> Great. And um, so you are uh, currently a uh, professor at Duke, is that right? That's right, assistant professor of the practice, which is really their version of a teaching professor. Okay. So I have about two courses a semester. Um, I do also a little bit of research on scholarship of teaching and learning. Oh, that's nice. So what we're hoping to get out of this episode, so we have a lot of undergraduate students that listen in, and uh, the majority of them are interested in grad school in one shape or the other, may not be a PhD, right? Uh, but they're interested in getting into grad school, maybe. And uh, a lot of them are obviously interested in science. So uh, we're hoping you can, you know, walk us through, I guess, how to become Tom Newford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I'll start in high school. Sure. And yeah. I think one common theme uh, that I'll you know, come back to is that I had incredible mentors along the way in high school, in here at Teal, in grad school, uh, and even currently. So it was really senior year of high school. I took an AP biology class and just had the best experience, had the best teacher. Um, and I, at that point, I fell in love with cell biology. I just thought the inside of the cell, you know, it was this, you know, cool, unexplored universe. And I just wanted to learn more about it. Um, so that, you know, led me to major in biology uh, here at Teal. And in the biology department, my, you know, the courses that I enjoyed the, mo the most were definitely in the cell biology, uh, genetics, um, microbiology, immunology. Was that mostly uh, Dr. Cuff at the point at that time? Yeah, that's right. Dr. Cuff, I had her for most of those courses. She was also my advisor um, and really played a large role in encouraging me to apply to grad school. Um, so, was, Did she teach immunology as well at the time? Yeah, that's right. It was immunology and parasitology. It was parasitology and immunology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I took that class over in 2014 and I split it into two. Now it's parasitology standalone and immunology standalone. And, uh, Probably a good idea. It's a lot of ground to cover when it is. it's combined. It yeah. is. It is. <laughs> and you tend, you tend to cheat one or the other, right? I was cheating the immunology part to cover the parasitology and, and I just had to split it up. Yeah. Immunology is incredibly complicated. You could probably... Oh, that, I mean, could, that, I think that should be a two-semester course. Yeah. <laughs> I think one yeah. semester does not do it justice. Yeah. T-cells in the fall, B-cells in the spring. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Innately adapted We tend to, like, when I'll spend, I don't know, like maybe one-third of the class on innate immunity. 
but you can teach really teach an entire course on anatomy. Mm -hmm. anatomy yeah. But okay, so you took those courses at Teal. Yeah, you know, and I remember going into Dr. Cuff's office one day for advising, and she said, "What are you going to do next year?" And I didn't have an answer. And, and that was your senior year. Yeah, it was probably early in the fall. Okay. And she encouraged me to apply to these PhD programs. And, you know, at the time, we didn't have a lot of information. The internet existed, but there wasn't a lot out there. So you didn't really mm -hmm. know about all the career opportunities. And so you, I think you relied really heavily late, on... Late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, 99. Okay. So we had just... Uh, oh, the internet was like, what, seven years old, maybe? Eight to six years old? Yeah, when I came to Teal in 96, we had six computers in the library with internet connection. <laughs> and you could never get access to them. That was dial-up, like, I take it. <laughs> yeah, there were four people on them all the time. You could never get on. Oh, man. By like 98, we had internet in the dorms, uh, okay. finally. Okay. But I think I was, it was pretty, you know, lacking... Um, you know, in, in knowledge about what was out there, what were the possible opportunities. But I think my advisor, um, you know, was really helpful in that sense. And so we had these flyers in the hallway and you just pulled a little pulled a tab. A card and send it in. And <laughs> Case Western accepted me for an interview and um, ended up in their virology program. Okay. But then immediately transferred into the molecular biology okay. uh, when I got there. Okay. Viruses are interesting. They're more interesting now, I think, than they used to be uh, 20 years ago, maybe. I read the book The Hot Zone, and okay. that's why I applied to the virology department. Okay. I was I thought Ebola was so fascinating, and you know I wanted to be a virus hunter. And right, right, right. when I got there, they're like, "Well, that's not what we do. We basically <laughs> do PCR all day. Right, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> Knock out a gene, find out what it does, put it back in. Does it restore function? I feel like that's again that's simplifying and ignorant of me to say a viral research, but I feel most of it is that way. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd be wearing some spacesuit, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. some like government lab. Yes, helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, I, uh, 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 one of the books that I've uh, read, you know, on the original stories of uh, discovering Ebola and the outbreaks and no one know, knew what it was. And there's, uh, you know, all obviously all like the hazmat suits and all of that. But then there's these crazy stories of like vials with Ebola breaking and spilling on the floor and then they're like scooping them up and... You know, mind you, this thing will kill you within a few days, right? Before they knew what it was. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So started, like, did, like, what, a year of virology? Well, I got in through that department, but then we had a year to do four rotations. Okay. and that, Four rotations? Yeah, which was wow. a lot. But I think what happens is you usually figure out which lab you want to join pretty quickly. But then doing those additional rotations is helpful because you learn techniques along Skills, the way. Yeah. And so then it's really not to your second year that you officially join the lab. But, but by that point, you know, I'd worked in a yeast lab, a fruit fly lab, mouse labs, have, you know, learned so many different techniques. So you're really able to hit the ground running then in your, the start of your second year. But I ended up in a cell bio lab, and we were studying clathrin-mediated endocytosis. Okay. And what was what caught my uh, attention there was that was one of the lectures that I remembered Dr. Cuff drawing um, these little clathrin, clathrin trischillians pits. and pits on the board. Um, and so Must that's have been cell biology then. That's right. Yeah. Cell yeah. Bio. Okay. So yeah, I did my my graduate work on clathrin. At the time, green fluorescent protein was a really big deal. It was okay. it was brand new technology. So everyone was tagging their favorite protein and taking movies and looking to see where their protein would go in the cell. And that was probably the only green floor at the time, right? <laughs> they probably have so many. I mean, they do have so many green ones now, right? Oh yes, there are. There's so many colors now, and they you know now they don't photo bleach as, as terribly. So right. I could only take short movies. Sure, sure. Um, but it was. 
the experiments were fun. It was, we were basically just watching endocytosis happen in real time and looking at the order in which different proteins are recruited to the surface. And then when, of course, it's, this was in yeast, so we can easily make mutations um, that disrupt the process and, and really, you know, get at the nuts and bolts for how these proteins assemble to allow this to happen. That's great. You know, uh, I, I think about stuff like that sometimes and, you know, I hear stories like these and I just think how lucky our students are to study science now, you know, because this this stuff now, there's videos like this on you. You can find information so quickly, so easily. Everything is simply explained. Yeah, I, I do worry about, you know, what are textbooks going to look like in 100 years? I feel like probably gone. Yeah, <laughs> my guess is gone. Maybe so. I, I with each edition of our neuroscience textbook, we just keep adding more and more facts. And I feel like these poor students, right? There's so much more that they're responsible for than we were 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did clathrin-mediated, pretty much studying clathrin-mediated endocytosis, right? Was it to study how the mechanism happens or were you studying like a particular uptake of a certain, say, like organism or do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, we. So really, the re, the reason that the lab was interested in this is that, um, you know, they weren't studying any particular cargo, or they weren't studying endocytosis for any real reason. You know, didn't relate to, you know, neurotransmission okay. or, or cancer or anything like that. Um, they were really just trying to understand the basic process, okay. and it turned out no one had ever shown that clathrin was at the plasma membrane in yeast, because. The imaging techniques before that really weren't good enough to see it there. And so that was that was really my first big paper that I, sh I proved that clathrin's at the membrane and therefore budding yeast is a valid, you know, model system to study clathrin-mediated endocytosis. And there are a lot of parallels to mammalian cells in terms of the proteins that are there and the time course of the whole process. Uh, but of course, because it's yeast, then we have this powerful genetic system where we right, can do, like, right. you know, forward and reverse genetics. And, yeah, yeah. And it's so easy to grow, right? I mean, that's just, yeast is not difficult to grow in the lab. Yeah, the system moves fast. If you have an idea, you can test it the next day. Right. And when I got into mammalian hippocampal neurons, that is not the case. <laughs> you have to plan things a month ahead. Yeah. And even cell, still, the cells are probably going to die on you before mm -hmm. you can do the experiment. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was a PhD student, my longest experiment was probably you know, infecting mice with toxoplasma and, you know, looking sort of at survival, right? And probably my longest experiment watching survival, maybe, you know, 20 days, 30 days. And then my postdoc, we did uh, vaccine work. And you want to look for long-term immunity. And I had an experiment that went on for like six months, right? <laughs> and you, you, you can't tweak it along the way, right? You, you started it, you just got to go. And then you submit it for review. And then reviewer number two says, oh, hey, you know, you should do this experiment. We're like, yeah, no, that'll take six months. And, you know, this amount of money and this amount of mice. So maybe not. It's tough as a grad student when you have those experiments and you know the years are, are you know taking by yeah they are and yeah you want to do your postdoc you want to graduate and uh, it's tough so we were lucky in yeast then right because when reviewer number two said hey well you need to do this this and this we had that done within a week yeah, so let's <laughs> <laughs> neat. yeah I mean our situation with that project was unless the reviewer had a comment that we could dig through our data to address mm -hmm. 
there was nobody doing experiments with, with that one unless you wanted to, you know, spend another year trying to figure it out. Right? So finished your PhD and then did a postdoc? Yeah, so as much as I love that yeast genetic system, at the end of the day, it is yeast. And there is a part of you that goes into biomedical research because you want to cure disease, you want to make the world a better place. And although I value you know, basic research, um, and it's responsible for many discoveries that you know, lead to um, you know, different cures and, and treatments, um, at the end of the day, I just wanted to do something a little more you know, relevant. So I, I ended up um, going to Duke, joining the neurobiology department, and working for a professor there that was studying clathrin-mediated endocytosis, but in hippocampal neurons, okay. and was interested in you know, the role of membrane trafficking in learning and memory formation within the hippocampus. So it was a tough transition. Uh, again, the, we were working with these dissociated cultured neurons. There was a lot of variation in the quality of the neurons week to week, so it was difficult to reproduce experiments. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, that's uh, that seems that that would be annoying. It is, yeah, and then it's it's tough as a postdoc. By that point, you know, you've you've got a house, you've you know, you've got a baby, you know, you, you want to know where you're going to be in four right. years, right. and you know, you need data to know where you're going to be in four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were these cell lines or primary cells or like uh, what were their what were they grown from? Yeah, these were usually uh, primary cell lines out of rats, okay. uh, hippocampus, but there were certainly people in the lab doing experiments on mice with different knockout lines. Okay. Um, but I had a number of colleagues in the lab that were doing really cool in vivo experiments with living mice, um, some of the first in vivo experiments on optogenetics, and really using that as a way to, you know, they weren't getting into behavior, but using that as a way to map um, circuit connectivity. Uh, so there was a lot of cool stuff going on in the lab. Um, and so even though my experiments weren't really going that well, it was such an incredible environment to be in. Um, you know, we had something like 15 postdocs and, you know, 20 people. In that lab. one lab? Yeah, it was a large oh, wow. lab. okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is a big lab, 15 postdocs. And so that experience ended up being really important for what I, I'm doing today. I, I teach neuroscience methods courses. I teach molecular and cellular neurobiology. And so just, you know, being in that environment, going to all those lab meetings, learning about all these different things, uh, it really helped, you know, convert me from a cell biologist into a, a neuroscientist. Okay. That's kind of neat. So uh, how, 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 how long was your postdoc? Well, the first one was five years. Okay. And what happened was the PI was looking for positions in industry. Okay. So he ended up going to Pfizer, um, became the um, chief scientific officer, and he was you know, basically there to try and cure Alzheimer's. Okay. So I actually had the opportunity to go to Pfizer with him and do an industry postdoc. I visited Pfizer a couple times. Um, it didn't feel like a good fit for me. Okay. So I decided to stay at Duke, and then I just joined another lab in the cell biology department. That was a really good experience. He was working with mouse models, autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, and we had you know, some really interesting data there. I was working on a mouse model, actually, of Fragile X syndrome. We basically cured Fragile X syndrome in mice just by lowering the levels of this one protein. So, so just just remind our listeners about uh, Fragile X syndrome and sort of you know briefly what it is. Yeah, so this is the most common um, you know form of inherited uh, intellectual disability, okay. and you know it had been known. 
hundred years ago that you know there was this X-linked uh, disorder, um, and then in the 1990s they figured out this gene FMR1 um, had a mutation, and it's they call it fragile X because if you look at these chromosomes under the microscope, a piece of the X chromosome actually breaks off. So that gene, as it turns out, codes for a protein that's a repressor of protein translation. So in fragile X syndrome, there is excessive protein production, and this causes widespread effects in these neurons. They basically become hyperplastic. They have too many synapses and spines. Um, they have enhanced long-term depression. So there's a lot of things wrong with those spines. The mice, the model mice, have learning and memory deficits. Okay. And so what we were trying to do is then lower the dosage of those other proteins that are upregulated in Fragile X. And we, we focused on this one protein, which is a regulator of the actin cytoskeleton, and, and that was able to actually rescue some learning and memory assays oh, nice, that we did. Nice. Yeah. Has that been turned, on, turned into anything clinical for humans or... Is there a human treatment for fragile X? Is it, is it common? I'm, I'm guessing not so much. So there was a, really what our work was related to was work um, by, by the scientist Mark Baer, who basically came up with this whole mGluR theory of fragile X. And so he had similar findings by just lowering the one levels of this metabotropic glutamate receptor. And so they were really excited about that because then they thought in you know, clinical trials they could just give this drug that inhibits those receptors, and it should in theory work. But my understanding is that the clinical trial failed, so okay. there's still no treatment. Okay. And is it is it too common or is it rare? So it is the most, fragile X syndrome is the most common form of um, intellectual disability that's genetically, or that's inherited. Okay. okay. Interesting. So that was uh, second postdoc. That's right. So at that point, then it's, okay, you know, what are we going to do next? I did not really, to get a faculty position and a, you know, a research uh, professor position, you're going to need at least one good paper, you know, maybe two. Oh. <laughs> uh, and it's M only... Multiple postdocs, uh, hopefully a science paper of some sort, right? Maybe JX Med, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really tough these days. So I had some review articles, I had some second author papers, but I didn't have that, like, cell science or nature paper, um, in part because the lab closed down. Also, you know, maybe just some bad luck with the experiments um, or the topics that I was working on. But um, the good thing is I... I learned a lot of research methods and, you know, the one thing that I, I started to enjoy is like my, around my fifth or sixth years of postdoc was actually giving lab meeting, the presentations. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed interacting with other, you know, people and those long days on the microscope alone in the dark, um, you know, I, I just felt like that wasn't for me anymore. I didn't want to be at the bench. I wanted to be, you know, teaching and communicating. So I was really lucky. A close friend of mine um, was a guest lecturer or was a visiting lecturer at UNC. And he invited me to come over and give a couple guest lectures. And it's one of those things, the first time you go into a lecture hall and you start, you know, I think you know right away if it's, if it's for you or not. And it was so much fun. I enjoyed every second of it. Uh, and then he really encouraged me to, you know, get as many guest lecture spots as I could. Eventually, there was an opportunity to be a visiting lecturer over at UNC. I taught Introduction to Neurobiology. Well, once you have that one class under your belt, then other schools offer you courses. So then I started adjuncting at two different community colleges and at Duke in the neuroscience major. And before you know it, you wake up one day and you're 
teaching at four different schools and have five different classes a semester. And, <laughs> but I was still part time and I still, you know, because I had my office out of my trunk. It was, you know, it was fun. But at the same time, it's like, OK, what is but where is this going? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is there ever going to be a full-time job resulting from this? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. We almost had the same uh, path to getting mm -hmm. to teaching. I, I was doing a postdoc at Cornell, and uh, my postdoc was wrapping up, and uh, I picked up a few guest lectures and a few courses at Cornell. And then the more I did guest lectures, the more people asked me to do guest lectures in different courses. and. Then I started adjuncting at the local community college, and then, and then I was like, oh, I need more courses, right? Started talking to this school, this yeah. school, and then eventually landed at Teal. Well, and it is, it's so rewarding, and it's really exciting. I mean, I think you you have to have some natural talent at this. You Not do. everyone you can do, do this. I yeah, think I there's, agree. most scientists think, oh, teaching is easy. You know, we can just go in. Anyone can teach. No, no, no. Knowing the content is half the battle at best. Absolutely. Most scientists are actually terrible teachers. I think. <laughs> they're, they're pretty good in the lab. They're pretty good about thinking, uh, really good scientists, mm -hmm. right? Really thinking experiments through, you know, uh, um, thinking 10 steps ahead in terms of experiments. But yeah. uh, you get them to give an elevator talk of right. what they do, and they're, they're just lost, right? Yeah. I think, you know, you have this moment when you start teaching that especially with sophomores, juniors, that maybe don't have a lot of experience yet, and you, you introduce them, they read their first research article. They, you know, and I would ha give them this neuron paper that had um, these optogenetic tools. So they have these light-activated ion channels that can cause you know, specific behaviors. And you know, the students read these papers, and you can just see it in their face. They're like, this is so cool. Like, this is what I want to do when I grow up. And they tell you, like, I want to go to grad school and be a scientist, right? Because of this class, because of, you know, because you were my teacher. And so, um, yeah, it's just such a good feeling. And I think Not that's what keeps you going. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, and then you landed a uh, teaching gig at Duke, which is where you are now, right? Yeah. Um, it was, you know, it took some time. Okay. For sure, full-time positions, you know, are hard to come by, and especially just teaching ones without research. That's right. Yeah, those are more difficult. I feel again. Uh, yeah, I was interviewing at small colleges, but they still wanted a research project. And I think if you're working in an inexpensive model system like yeast, fruit flies, the elegans, you can pull that trick off. But I had just come from a mouse lab. And, you know, those people usually have grants for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right, and right. so there's just no way that I could actually run a research project at a small college and teach. So it seemed like teaching professor at a university was really the best way to go here. Um, so, yeah, in, in 2016, started full time at Duke in the undergraduate neuroscience major. And I have five different classes and, you know, some of them are upper level seminars, which are so much fun because you can really dig deep in a topic. Um, but I also have a couple, you know, 200 level core courses, uh, which are also exciting because then you've got that room, that big lecture hall with 100 people and, mm -hmm. you know, there's a certain energy level in the air. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy teaching first year uh, undergrads, first semester, mm -hmm. as much as, as I enjoy teaching seniors. Uh, and I think if you can, uh, you know, do some magic in a, in a freshman course and get these kids hooked on science. Uh, it's a good thing, but it, it's difficult, man. It's it is difficult. Yeah, a lot of my colleagues, they, I think they, the hundred level are tough because you also have non majors coming through. You do, you do. Um, 
But and you also have those that are trying to figure out what to do with their lives and yeah. is this for me, is this not for me? And but you know, some, sometimes uh, teaching seniors can be difficult too. I mean, there's senioritis, there's, uh, there's the, um, I'm just taking it because I need it for graduation, you know? It's, it... Well, the other thing that happens, especially since uh, spring senior year and it's going on right now, they've just been accepted into med school or grad school. Yeah. So they go into autopilot. Yeah, that spring <laughs> senior year, that's a tough semester to teach that group. I agree, yeah. I agree, they're just uh, scooting by. Cool. Uh, any, anything else you want to add in terms of sort of like your career progression? Yeah, so we, even though I my primary responsibility in the major is teaching, we still have some research scholarship obligations. And really, I, there's no way I can continue, you know, carry on my molecular and cellular learning and memory work. Uh, I don't have a lab. I don't have funding. So what a lot of us are interested in that are in my position at Duke, um, really just focusing on teaching and learning. So uh, we are doing classroom studies okay. to really try and figure out what works best, what has you know the best learning gains for our students. And there are a number of faculty in the department that are using this special form of active learning called team-based learning. Mm -hmm. And so I, I started to use uh, team-based learning in my classes too. And it's um, it can be difficult to make that transition from lecture-based to uh, team-based learning, but you know once you you finally do that and it, you know you successfully pull it off, it's um, you know it's such an exciting, dynamic classroom environment, um, and it's really rewarding. You know on those days when you know it's working well, uh, and so you know when I started teaching, it was I was all lecture, and I you know. I'd like to think I was okay, but I know I wasn't like the coolest, funniest guy in the world. No, no, no. And so the great thing about using these active learning strategies is that I don't have to be the funniest, coolest guy in the world. Like I'm structuring the course in such a way that they're still going to be engaged and they're still going to have fun, uh, whether or not I crack a hundred jokes. So, right. <laughs> um, but we're at the point now where we just want to document, you know, is this working? So there are a number of us in the major that are using team-based learning. And so um, we're really at the point now where just, you know, releasing surveys and, you know, calculating okay. learning gains and, okay. and hopefully want to publish this. Um, these yeah, you should, for sure. So, for sure. yeah, in the talk today, I'll, I'll show a little bit of this data. Um, and I presented at the neuroscience meeting uh, and ran into Dr. Butcher while I was there. Okay. So and that's pretty much how we, how we ended up here. interacted okay. yeah, and got here. So. All right, cool, cool. Um, what advice would you give... Uh, Let's start with freshmen going into the sciences, and then we'll do sort of what advice would you give sort of a junior or a senior wanting to go into grad school or something like that. But let's say you're a freshman coming into uh, college, you think you want to do science, what what advice would you give? Or do you have advice? Yeah, I think what's tough those first few years with the core courses, you know, you're taking these things that are a requirement, and you're not necessarily getting exposed to the most exciting and interesting parts of that field. And so, and, and part of that comes on us as faculty to like, you know, really reshape that first year experience so that you want to join our field. I, um, there's, I mean, but there's so many different fun ways you can teach glycolysis. Right? <laughs> we did glycolysis today and I'm like, oh. Yeah. My God, none of you will see this again, probably, yeah. unless you get into biochemical pathways. But yeah. I got to teach it. But, you know, but we should ask ourselves, why do we have to teach it? You know, but, you know, if they if they really want to go into science, I just, you know, 
ask them to be patient, hang in there, it will get better. And by the time, you know, junior year comes around, you're going to take those courses where it's like, yes, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say just, you know, the good things will come. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. And uh, what advice do you give anybody thinking of uh, grad school? Uh, let's say PhDs, you know, well, someone else will do the medical business. Probably the biggest barrier I had getting accepted to grad schools when I was um, senior year at Teal was that I didn't have a lot of research experience. Okay. Now, there was partially that was my fault. I could have gone to Pitt for the summer and worked in a lab. I mean, there were things that I could have explored that I didn't take advantage of. But if you only rely on your you know, coursework and those laboratory experiences and those courses, you're going to be at a disadvantage when you go um, on those applications. You're competing against people from research universities that have been working in the lab for three years. Many of them have first author publications. So I didn't appreciate how competitive it really is. Um, so just, and the other thing, I, reason I think it's really important to have a lot of research experience under your belt before you even apply is because then you'll know if it's for you. Right. The first year of grad school, we had so many people drop out. It wasn't that they weren't smart enough, that they couldn't handle it. It's just that they realized, like, I don't have the patience right. to do this experiment over 10 times uh, and be pipetting all day. It's, you know, it's hard work. They just don't know what it is. They just don't know what science, what the process of science is. Yeah, and just reading a textbook, in no way can that prepare you for reality. And textbooks make things seem so simple and that, you know, we right. did this once and figured this out and you don't realize the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the... yeah, they think experiments work from the first time around, right? Because, I mean, for the most part, um, you know, and we're, we're really trying hard to change that here at Teal, but uh, for the most part, a lot of science labs are caged labs. You walk in, you have a pre-printed protocol for you, and uh, you have everything set up, and you just got to add A to B and this this to that, and follow the protocol, and uh, voila, at the end, you have this beautiful result, right? And uh, a few years back, we're like, you know, screw this. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change the way we do these labs, right? And uh, now, uh, most of us just do plain research in labs. You come in, and you ask yeah. a question, and I say, okay, well, you tell me how you want to proceed. And students are not used to that. They'll, they'll get used to it eventually, but. Yeah, that's really good to hear because that's the most important thing they need to learn about research, right? Like how do you ask questions? How do you figure out what is and isn't known? Uh, right now in a course, I'm having the students write these NIH style mock grants. Oh, that, that, the, that's really nice. The hardest part for them is to figure, you know, what remains to be figured out in this field or what are, you know, the most important. Right. Right. Um, things go up and it so really writing that abstract is the hardest part for them and coming up with those two specific aims yeah um, yeah I mean this is kind of a funny side point so I at one community college I was teaching at we had a bio 100 lab and um, we had a PCR machine that didn't work very well you know but the students they put in all this time and energy to do the PCR so we knew the PCR machine was broken and they're doing the PCR and so my colleague would actually spike their reaction so that it looked <laughs> like it worked when they ran out the gel <laughs> but again it gets to your point of like we weren't really training them to think as scientists we were right. just showing them like the procedural right. you know giving them the procedural memory of doing a PCR but not actually like hey um, you know, if we wanted to test if something was not, like, can you design some primers or how would you modify this protocol if it didn't work? You know, all that troubleshooting that is like essential as a scientist. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, my cell biology lab uh, two weeks ago ran a PCR and um, 
all 19 samples did not produce a product. <laughs> <laughs> and this week uh, I came in and I said, okay, well, let's, uh, yeah. what do you want to do next? Let's troubleshoot this, right? And uh, they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, let's everybody bring out your computer and let's uh, start troubleshooting PCR. And, you know, they ended up uh, creating... 19 new samples, yeah. each with different concentrations of magnesium chloride or DNA or primer or this and that. Right. And, but that's the way to do it, man. And caged labs are so last century. Yeah. I don't know why schools still do them. They, they do not teach students anything. Right. It's not a cooking show, right? Yeah, it's not going to come out of the oven perfectly. No. The majority of the time it will fail. Yeah. Exactly. Or you're doing something slightly different that no one's ever done before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does not teach anybody about the process of science whatsoever. And I think the process of science is more important than the result at the teaching level. Mm -hmm. For us later, you know, we, we care more about the results, right? But I think for students at the undergraduate level, it's more important to learn the process than to get that experiment to work, right? right? Um, okay, any other advice you want to throw at our students? Yeah, you know, maybe to the juniors and seniors that, you know, you don't know what you're going to do. You haven't, you know, heard back from a grad school yet or, you know, what does the future hold for you? And I would just say, you know, stay positive. Uh, yeah, there could be some tough times along the way, but you're going to find, you know, something that's really a good fit for you. Just I was curious about what happened to all of the bio majors and chem majors that I graduated with around the year 2000. Mm -hmm. So I went on LinkedIn and I looked up all, all of their profiles and you know, it's just really impressive to see what everyone has accomplished and where everyone has gone. And yeah, most of us didn't go to grad school. Most of them didn't uh, pursue a PhD. But we've got, you know, within my group, we have a family physician, uh, physician assistant, got a lot of people that went to industry. So, you know, you, it's hard to predict where you're going to end up. A lot's going to happen along the way. I think the most important thing is, you know, just to be, be true to yourself. If you wake up one day and realize like your heart's not in what you're doing and you're not passionate about it anymore, you need to make a change. Uh, but as long as you love what you're doing and, you know, it's intellectually stimulating and you work hard at it, you know, good things are going to happen. So that's just, you know, Worry, but don't worry too much, I guess, about the future. Everything's going to work out as long as you're, you know, doing something that's a good fit for you. I agree. I agree. Uh, a rejection from grad school is not the end of the world. And we're starting to get uh, back news from grad schools for a lot of our students. And some are getting accepted, some, mm -hmm. some are not. And that's just fine. Yeah. You know, average age of getting into med school these days is in the mid-20s, you know, or even... 26, 27, something like that, you know, average age of getting into grad school is also getting higher and higher. Yeah. I think 20 years ago, taking a gap year or two, that was something that would, you know, really make your parents nervous. Right. And now it seems like more people are doing that than going straight into grad school or med right. school. Um, so yeah, if you didn't get into a PhD program and, you know, biomedical research, go work in a lab for a year or two. Yeah. Get a tech job. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And then you'll be incredibly competitive then when you mm -hmm. do apply. Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll learn all the techniques you'll need, and uh, you'll also figure out if it's for you or not. Uh, cool. Yeah, better to do that beforehand than when you're two years into the program and have moved to New York City. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, some, some, uh, some programs, when you, when you drop out, say, your third, fourth year, whatever, might give you a master's. Uh, but 
a lot don't. Right. So it, it's it's a good idea to know that that's what you want to get into before you spend three, four years of your life and then have nothing to show for it. Yeah, maybe one more piece of advice too. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to network and to talk to people. Every teaching position I've gotten, you know, it was one of these things where I just, you know, some chance encounter. I met someone, I talked to somebody, you sent an email. Uh, you really do have to be bold. And if you are an introvert and that is outside of your comfort zone, it is something that you're going to have to get, you know, over. Uh, you're going to have, it's, I, I don't want to say that it's, you know, who you know is more important than what you know, but who you know is very important. <laughs> no, no, I absolutely agree. My first full-time teaching job uh, wasn't an advertised position. I, mm -hmm. I, I said, hey, listen, I, I said to myself, you need this experience, and community college is just 20 minutes away from my house at the time, and I emailed the chair of that department. I'm mm -hmm. like, here's my CV. I'm interested yeah. in teaching. And he's like, oh, come have a chat, you know? And then I went and talked to him, and 20 minutes later, he's like, all right, I'll give you a course. I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah. But it wasn't an advertised position at all. And they seem to take internal candidates, especially for full time. I was applying to many community colleges and not hearing back, you know, for the full time positions. And then I realized it wasn't until I was like set up in a department that I realized how it works. No. They're usually interviewing their own adjuncts right. and they usually get the job. Yeah. And so you have to. You know, don't think that you're just going to magically get some full-time position somewhere. Right. You're going to mm -hmm. have to do a year, you know, of that adjuncting, develop those relationships, you know, perfect your craft. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, good things will happen. Absolutely. Uh, any final words? I think I've said everything I can. Uh, think of? Yeah. Right, cool. Well, I thank you a lot for coming to do this. The, this, this means a lot to... Uh, me and it'll mean a lot to our student listeners, I'm sure. So thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think it is just so cool that you're doing this. Um, I'm really impressed with you know everything that's going on here. Uh, it was a, it was you know an awesome experience being a student here 20 years ago, but I see a lot of positive change too, which is also cool. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, hey, thank you for. Uh, recording and uh, thanks to our listeners and we'll catch you next time. All right. Thank you.